From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiotakis with the show that connects you to the people and places and prawns of Southern California. Mercado La Paloma in historic South Central is a food hall that features eight restaurants, including L.A. Times 2023 Restaurant of the Year, Holbosch. And there, behind a packed lunch counter of regulars and tourists and foodies, Chef Gilberto Satina is plating aguachile de camarón. It's a raw shrimp dish that he calls a no-tomato, herbaceous, very acidic cousin of the, of the ceviche. I'm going to add some serrano pepper. We've got the fried shrimp heads. And that gives it a nice temperature contrast also. cold and The aguachile heads to table 10. Its final destination. It's amazing. As you can hear, the flavors and the textures of aguachile de camarón are easy to savor. It's much harder, Chef Satina says, to guess where in the world those shrimp actually come from. Any guesses? No one has ever said downy, because nobody thinks you know of downy, but... Yeah, those shrimp come from the landlocked southeast L.A. County city of Downey. It's known for airplane production, the Apollo space program, and now it's known for a pioneering indoor shrimp farm that's caught the attention of L.A.'s top chefs and hopes to change how Californians view their seafood. Reporter Jackson Cantrell has the story. There is a space capsule just off the 105 freeway in Downey. That cone-shaped part of the spaceship, like what Neil Armstrong stepped out of when he landed on the moon. And right next door to that is one giant leap for shrimp farming. Sure to watch your step and then, I'm sure you weren't like uh, eating shrimp or something this morning, but if you don't mind, this is just a little alcohol and water. Steve Sutton has built a shrimp farm here in an old warehouse that can produce nearly a million bratwurst-sized prawns a year. Shrimp and prawns are technically different animals, but in North America, we tend to call them both shrimp. Anyhow, what's really unusual is not the size of the operation, but the sustainability. The entire farm uses about the same amount of water as a typical American family. So even as it is, we've got like 250,000 gallons in this building, and we're discharging just a couple hundred a day. The warehouse once held an airplane parts factory, then later a car repair shop that fell into disrepair. All the doors were kicked in, windows broken, um, took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, we've been operating for really about like a year and a half, two years. Around the world, people eat about 500 billion shrimp a year. In America, people eat more shrimp than any other seafood by far. And in the U.S., the vast majority of shrimp, 90% is imported, mainly from Asia, where shrimp are farmed in large open-air man-made ponds, typically built in clear-cut mangrove forests on the coasts. Sutton's operation, Transparency Farm in Downey, it's different. The prawn farm has a NASA meets pirate ship feel. There's a network of large PVC pipes that feed into pumps and panels with bright buttons. Behind that, massive boxes, 30 feet long, made out of two by fours and plywood and reams of heavy duty plastic sheeting. Climb up a few stairs and you can see that the boxes are giant tanks, eight of them, 
each containing a lazy river of 30,000 prawns swimming in a circle against the current. This batch has about two more weeks to grow. So they're still a little small, but you can see they're, they're swimming. You know, there's a lot of current to keep from the animals just sitting on the bottom, and they do jump. They do jump. Yeah. According to Sutton, the farm is 30 times more space efficient than the outdoor farms in Asia. All those tubes, filters, and pumps, they add oxygen and remove carbon dioxide and filter out solids 16 times a day. There's also what Sutton calls a biological filter. It's a sort of shrimp sewage treatment plant. We grow trillions of bacteria that are essential in processing the dissolved waste of the shrimp. You could grow shrimp in your bathtub, but it would be good for a few hours or even a couple days, and then they would die because there's no bacteria to break down their waste. In three months, the prawns are ready to be packaged and sold. And they're big, longer than my hand. Uh, the guys are just finishing Those up. Those are huge. Yeah, these are the biggest ones we sell. These are called Colossal. We don't use any preservatives. We just harvest the same day. Everything's pre-ordered and delivered that same day. That same day freshness is just what chefs like Hilberto Satina at Holbosch are looking for. Aguachila is one of those dishes that the quality of the shrimp is the most important thing, bar none. If you don't have a good enough quality shrimp, you don't have an aguachile. It's the perfect uh, shrimp for the aguachile because it's such a clean, crisp flavor with no aftertaste and none of that iodine-y flavors that you get from a lot of farm shrimp. You know, those Juicy, colossal prawns delivered as fresh as you can get them. What's not to like? Well, there's the price. Transparency's prawns are expensive, like $20 to $29 a pound. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like kind of the elephant in the room as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I think the next farm, I mean, we have real plans to reduce the cost. How far down, you know, that's, that's the secret, right? Is it how Sutton tells me Transparency's next farm will be much larger. It'll be built on cheaper land here in Southern California, and it will automate a lot of manual tasks that drive up labor costs. Sutton says that those changes should bring down the price, and hopefully will put sustainably farmed local prawns on the plates of more consumers. For now, he sells every prawn he can farm. Of course, there's another perspective you might want to hear. How do the prawns feel about this? Stay with me here. New research out of the London School of Economics led the UK government to recognize shrimp and prawn sentience in 2022. And yeah, if you're like me, you might be thinking, oh geez, we're doing this for shrimp now. But I'll let Shrimp Welfare Project founder Andres Jimenez-Zuria make the case. This case, there were eight different criteria. And basically when they look at, at shrimps and crabs and crayfish and lobsters, they can determine with a good degree of, of confidence that these animals do display evidence of, of having these qualities. Qualities like pain receptors, brain regions to integrate pain, and exhibiting pain-avoiding behaviors. Jimenez-Zuria says that when you look at this research in the context of the sheer number of farmed shrimp and prawns, shrimp welfare is worth considering, even if they aren't nearly as sentient as, say, pigs and chickens are. I asked about indoor farms like Transparency and Downey, and Jimenez-Zuria said they can be hit or miss. The shrimp density is a negative, but constant water oxygenation and quality monitoring is a positive. When you ask Steve Sutton and Downey for his thoughts, 
he doesn't want to get too into shrimp sentience, but he says healthy shrimp are good for business. Do they have any feelings? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can tell you that anatomically, they're more similar to a cockroach than they are to a, to a goat or a, a cow uh, by a lot. They're much, much, much more similar. They just happen to be an ocean-dwelling and delicious one. So um, do cockroaches have sentience? Do they have feelings? Like, you know, I guess if I had to bet, I would say, yeah, maybe, probably. Um, but if we were farming cockroaches, we would do it as, as well as we could with as much respect for the animals as we can, while also dealing with a global reality, which is we need protein. Delicious protein. Back at Holbosch over a plate of transparent sea aguachile, I avoid pondering prawn welfare as I pop a fried shrimp head into my mouth. Oh my, that's special. With menus bragging about locally sourced heirloom tomatoes or wild-caught Maine lobster, maybe it's only a matter of time before downy-raised shrimp is the next big thing. For KCRW, I'm Jackson Cantrell. You're listening to Greater LA on 89.9 KCRW. I'm Steve Chitakis. Coming up in about eight minutes, putting your cat on a leash and taking it for a hike. Is it cat hell or cat heaven? Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Earn your graduate degree in a flexible online format from University of Southern California and learn from faculty at the top of their fields in areas such as business, health, law, engineering, psychology, communications, and more. Explore your options today at online.usc.edu. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Onward now with more of Greater L.A. from 89.9 KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. The city of Sierra Madre butts right up against the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. It's a place where people move to be close to nature, but lately those folks have been getting a little more into the wild than they would prefer. Bears have been taking over Sierra Madre, getting into homes, cars, trash, and more. The black bear population is booming in Sierra Madre. Take a look at the wild intruder one Sierra Madre man discovered inside his house. He was surprised to find his front door wide open and quickly noticed that bear on the counter scarfing down a bucket of KFC. But wait, there's more. Three little bear cubs find a sandwich that was just right in Sierra Madre. Much, though, to the dismay of the man holding that sandwich. Sierra Madre Police Chief Gustavo Barriento says over the past couple of years, the animals have gotten bolder. We've tripled almost 300 percent of incidents where the bear enters a residence or causes property damage. And that has spurred officials to deem bears a public safety threat in the city. But why are police officers responding to bear reports? And where did all these bears come from in the first place? 
KCRW Zoe Matthew headed for the foothills to get some answers. Police Chief Barry Entos says when it comes to dealing with bears in Sierra Madre, locals are basically split into two camps. You have those that want you to harm the bear, and then you have those community members that want you to hug a bear. That's the reality of it. Daniela Nino, who lives in a cozy house at the border of town, is Team Hug. A few years back, a whole family of bears moved into the vacant lot across the street. In her eyes... They are really cute. And then when they come with the babe, with their cubs, oh boy, it's a beautiful sight. She's grown fond of her furry neighbors, despite the fact that they do sometimes drag trash into her driveway. But Cynthia Compton, who lives just a few blocks away from Anino, is not so focused on how cute they are. She's team harm. Compton keeps a stun gun on hand to scare the 500-pound beast because she's fed up with them repeatedly raiding her bird feeder and trash bins. She fears for her safety. I don't like it. It's uh, nerve-wracking. And I've seen them right there by my living room window. And I'm pound on the window. Go, bear, go. Get out of here and pull out the stun gun. While locals might be divided on their feelings about the bears, most can agree that there are more of them in town than ever. Why forage for berries when there's a trash buffet right in front of you? Bears in an urban environment, you know, they can easily get a full day's meal just by visiting all the bird feeders in the neighborhood or all the garbage cans in the neighborhood. That's Rebecca Barboza, biologist for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. She says as L.A.'s foothill communities have crept closer to the mountains, climate change-related issues like fire and drought have made the forest less hospitable for bears, pushing more to make the commute to L.A. And that's paid off in terms of population growth. The animals that are living in these urban areas are doing so well that they're able to reproduce more and those offspring are able to live, survive to adulthood. And so we've got uh, an unnaturally dense population, we believe, within the urban zone. So what are people supposed to do when they find a bear in their home or swimming pool? James Carlson, a management analyst for Sierra Madre, says, call the cops. We're very small. We're 11,000 people. We don't even have a traffic light in town. So you can imagine we don't have professionals. We don't have biologists. In 2022 alone, police in Sierra Madre say they received 130 calls about bears, up from just over 100 in 2020. And they expect that number will rise again this year. But while cops will respond to these calls, there's really not much they can do. Unless the animal is acting aggressive, which black bears almost never do, their policy is mainly to warn other people it's around and to avoid making it angry. I think our citizens are under the impression that we go and number one, we're going to shoot a bear. Number two, start using some sort of force to move it northward. We don't do that. I think there's more harm with doing it than good. So Sierra Madre officials are asking for backup. In April, they passed a resolution to declare bears a public safety threat in the city, which urged the State Department of Fish and Wildlife to beef up its bear prevention efforts. Here's Carlson again. We're not really telling Fish and Wildlife what we want done. We're telling them that what has been going on is really not effective. Sierra Madreans remind state officials that they were the ones who brought bears here in the first place which is actually true. Black bears are not native to SoCal. In the 1930s, wildlife officials up in Yosemite National Park created special bear pits filled with trash to attract the bears for spectators' entertainment. 
Unsurprisingly, those bears acquired a taste for human food. And when they became a nuisance, the state shipped 27 bears down south. Their many, many grand cubs are the same ones that roam the foothills today. But Barboza from Fish and Wildlife says this isn't just a Sierra Madre problem. The number of black bears has tripled statewide over the past four decades, which makes figuring out a long-term solution tough. If we try relocation, if we try captivity, if we try euthanasia, there's still so many bears in the area. If one leaves, there's going to be another one that's going to start doing the same behaviors. Right now, Fish and Wildlife deals with bears on a case-by-case basis, depending on the animal's behavior. But Barboza says at the end of the day, public education is still the best tactic they've got. If people are still leaving doors open, if they're still leaving garbage available, if they're still leaving food out for the bears, then nothing is really going to work. She is, however, feeling hopeful about a new trap tag haze program the department is rolling out. It will allow them to capture the bears, tag them so they can track their movement, and then haze them with loud noises or beanbag projectiles. As you can hear, hazing is super annoying. It's supposed to drive the bears back into the woods for good, but it remains to be seen how well that will work. For now, Sierra Madre locals like Anino will continue getting visits from their furry neighbors like the one we spotted out of her kitchen window in the middle of our interview. Oh, which is in the same he's behind the bush. The bear? Yeah. Wait, let's Just go. Just let's, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go take here. a look. We ran across the street to get a closer look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's like wandering through the bushes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ambling around. That's so cool. Right? For this reporter, spotting a real life bear was a thrill. For Anino, it was just another day living in the San Gabriel foothills. For KCRW, I'm Zoe Matthew. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. This is Greater L.A. from KCRW. Before you leave us today, a little ditty about cats. Ever heard the term herding cats? It's used as an example of the futility of trying to get everyone together. Because a cat marches to the beat of its own drum. You can't tell a cat what to do, much less put a leash on it and take it on a walk. But that's just what L.A. Times writer Lila Seidman did. And continues to do, and she's here to talk about this growing walking your cat trend. Lila, welcome to you. Steve, it's a pleasure to be here. You have a Persian pussycat named Orson. I do, he's right here. When did you first decide that you wanted to try taking him out for a hike? So even before I took him home, I wanted to try to walk him. I I knew I wanted a cat, and I thought, you know, I might give this walking thing a try. I mean, it's not a foreign idea, right? I mean, you have a pet, and sometimes you want to take the pet with you. And a lot of people take pets, like in a carrier or in the car with them or something like that. But walking a cat is something different because, as I mentioned, the cat marches to the beat of its own drum. Yeah, and that's 
still the case with walking many cats. You know, people might see very, very um, athletic or adventurous cats on Instagram or TikTok and think, okay, my cat is going to be crushing miles with me on Runyon. And that is probably not going to be the case. My cat likes to be on a harness walking, but he kind of meanders and I follow. And by the way, there are some cats that don't like to be tethered at all and they'll freak out, right? That's true. Um, My cat took to it right away. It was just his ticket to the big wild world and he loved it immediately. But many cats do not. So I spoke to some cat experts who said, you know, you need to seek consent to put the harness on the cat. See and check in with the cat how they're doing and responding to it. Cats actually can be trained, contrary to popular belief that you mentioned in uh, the beginning of this conversation, but not all cats will come around. And all the cat experts I talked to told me, you do need to respect that if that's the case. Tell us about a typical hike when you take Orson out. I've been walking him around the neighborhood for about a year, and he always tries to sniff other people's um, porches and, you know, generally be uh, a curious cat. (laughs) But recently we actually went on our first hike. I took him somewhere very, very quiet and isolated. I strategically did that because I wanted him to have this experience where he could just explore the trail and, you know, not run into, for example, dogs or other people or bikes, you know. So, I know that he can get a little bit startled, and so I made the decision to take him somewhere quiet. And and let's just say that cats can get really rambunctious if they're freaked out, scared, angry. That is true. And, you know, of course, there are horror stories where the cat slips out of their harness. And that's why this should be done slowly, so that you know how your cat responds to certain situations. Like, I know if my cat here's a car, he's probably going to be startled. So I already know that from just being right outside my front door, he can come back to the porch and everything is fine. And that also helps you learn how the equipment works. If he can get out of his harness in the house, then you do not want to take the cat outside. You know, you need to troubleshoot all these things and really be sensitive to how your cat is responding. And one cat expert I talked to, she said she really discourages people from doing this. The only exception she'll make is if she sees an owner that has a really good bond with their cat and is really paying attention to those signals. Have you been getting any blowback from anyone saying, why are you putting this out there? Because this is weird. Well, I didn't realize that there was such a heated debate about this in the cat behaviorist community. (laughs) So I reached out to people to get their tips. And then um, I learned through conversations that it's not a settled matter whether this is considered good for cats or not. It's split down the middle. Some people think this is a great way to get your cat out into the wild in a safer way than just letting them run free. I spoke to kind of celebrity cat behaviorist Jackson Galaxy who held that position. Um, But then a local trainer... Uh, Hannah McCoy told me that, no, it's way too dangerous in L.A. I mean, there's unleashed dogs that can come running. So 
I definitely have gotten some not great responses, but it's it's an ongoing conversation. But you're going to keep walking Orson. I'm I'm doing it with precautions, but he really likes walking, Steve. He meows at the door. <laughs> he complains when he can't go out. I, I don't feel that I'm forcing him to go. I feel he's often pushing me to go. <laughs> Ask your veterinarian if walking is right for you. <laughs> Veterinarians, you know, the one you can't say they're an outdoor cat like that is like enraging to a lot of cat professionals and experts. Oh, you mean leaving them outside without a leash, right? Letting them come and go at at will. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Lila Seidman, West Coast Experiences reporter for the L.A. Times. And certainly this is an experience. Lila, thanks. Thanks so much. Well, that's going to do it for our holiday animal show. Hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, it's all about the helpers. Stories of folks who go above and beyond to help their fellow humans right here in the City of Angels. I hope you'll join us for that on this holiday week. KCRW.com slash GLA. That's the place where you can reach out with a story idea. Maybe you have a comment, a thought. Tell us how you're doing. Grab the podcast, too, so you can have the show on the go at KCRW.com slash GLA. And get the podcast, by the way, wherever you get your podcast. Just search KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthews, Celine Mendiola, Phil Richards, Ray Guarna, Sonia Guys, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Jocelyn Morbeck, Mike Vogel, and Christian Bordall all helped assemble today's episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Happy holidays to you. Thanks for the time and that ear. Bye bye. <laughs>